following Jesus is uh, both harder and easier than it seems. In real life, following Jesus is both harder and easier than it seems. When I was uh, uh, a number of years ago on my birthday, I remember I was in a lot of pain. I had my arthritis in my hips. If you know that about me, I I had really bad arthritis. And so I had a bunch of flare-ups in a row, and it got to my birthday, which is October 31st. And um, I can remember distinctly being in my apartment. I had a roommate, and I can remember being there, and the couch kind of went out from the wall, and I was sitting with my back to the couch in kind of the kitchen living room area, and I was weeping. I was, like, so overwhelmed with despair. And I can remember thinking, like, crying out to God and being like, God, how can I follow you? How can I even go and do anything for you if I can't even leave this room? I'm in so much pain. How is that even going to work? How can I go and be martyred on the shores of some savage tribe, you know, and do this great thing that I was going to do for you, God? How can I even do that if I can't even leave the room? And then as clearly as I've ever heard God speaking to my heart, I felt God say, what if this is what I'm asking you to do? It's like, what? What if this is the sacrifice I'm asking from you? What if this is what it is? Would you be willing to submit to me if this is what it takes to know me the most? Would you submit to it? You know, Jesus says things to his disciples, to his followers, and he repeatedly said things to make it hard. He had all these people following him, and then he would say these things that made it hard for people to follow. He said challenging things. He weeded out followers by the things he said. And the call to follow Jesus was a costly one. You know, but we're in our Luke series. We've called it Luke for for everyone. Yeah, Luke for everyone. And we heard these stories, right? Like we've been studying and all the Dr. Luke's detailed accounts, and we've noticed him highlighting these different things. He highlights the kind of people Jesus called to follow him. We've talked about that. And we've talked about the kind of people he touched and he healed. And we've talked about the kind of people Jesus loved and the kind of people that his new kingdom message applied to. And as we look at it, we realize it's for everyone. It's for everyone. But just because everyone is invited doesn't mean it's not costly. Just because everyone is invited doesn't mean that it's easy. And that's our story this morning where Jesus, um, well, let's read it. It's Luke chapter 9. It's up there in the corner. Luke chapter 9 verses 18 to 36. And you can follow along if you have a Bible. If you don't, I'll, I'll be reading it. So Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 36. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. That's already just a great statement. As he's praying alone, the disciples are with him. He can't even get away from these guys. <laughs> and he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. And then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he, charged, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, 
the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, so then he's talked to the bigger group. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me in my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Whew. This is God's word. My big idea this morning is that following Jesus in real life is harder and it's easier than it seems. Following Jesus in real life is both harder and easier <laughs> than it seems in real life. Oh, there, there it is. It's a confusing big idea. But if you can remember it, then that'll be a good thing. I think followers of Jesus, the first thing we see is followers of Jesus recognize the king. Followers of Jesus recognize the king. We were at a, a church planter summit, so we went to one in November, but the very first one we went to was the year before that. And I can remember we went to this, it's like a big 200 church planters from all over Canada, and they get together, and we have these big, amazing speakers they bring in from different places to encourage us and teach us on things. And, and so we're with all these people, and so the meals... We'd go into these big ballroom and it'd be all these tables and it's not assigned seating. You'd just go and you'd network with different church planters. So the idea is like, go sit with different people every meal and you get to hear stories and talk to people. And I should just tell you that um, I have trouble with small talk. It's kind of weird. It's one of a weird thing. People wouldn't, maybe they wouldn't know that. Or you'd be like, yeah, I know that's true because I tried to small talk with you and you're weird. But the truth is that I can, I enjoy deep conversation and going deep into things and like, you know, the pastoral conversation, we really get into things. But like, just, just kind of making small talk, I really have a hard time. I had to really work at it and practice at it to be able to kind of do it. And I have like questions in my mind that I think about. And so going and sitting at tables with people was like, okay, you know, and, but, but we could do it. Like we're all, we're all church planners. We got a lot in common. I remember this one meal, we sat down at this table, and of course, Lauren, she's awesome at this, so she's chatting away, you know, she's the life of the table, and so I turned to the guy next to me, and he's this older guy, and so I was like, okay, and so we started talking, and you know, are you a church planner? Nope, no, I'm not a church planner. Oh, okay, what's your name? Okay, nice to meet you, and you know, where are you from? Oh, yeah, okay, and I'm like, suddenly he's not a church planner. I'm like, oh, my questions just went down to like just a few now, you know, and I try to ask a few questions, and the more questions I ask him, the more awkward it gets. And I'm like, this is getting weirder and weirder. Like, man, and so I'm asking about his ministry. What do you do? And these different things. And then I turned back and I was talking to Lauren. I was like, okay, well, that was a bomb. Okay, like, well, she's doing well. This is good. So I'll just jump in on her. And then as I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, and then I look back over and I realize the guy I'm sitting next to is the speaker of the conference. <laughs> Which is why it was getting so awkward because he keeps saying who he is and talking about it. And I didn't realize the whole time I'm talking to him. Very embarrassing. But recognition makes sense of things. Because as soon as I recognized him, I realized all the things he'd been saying made sense. And all my questions seemed really idiotic. 
But recognition made sense of things. Jesus, in the last chapter of Luke, has been, he's raised this girl from the dead. And he healed another woman in front of everybody. And then he, um, he multiplied the food. We just did that. And it was, people were talking about Jesus. Who is this Jesus? We want to know about this Jesus. But they aren't sure what to make of him. Because, you know, he doesn't quite fit in the box. And they're trying to figure him out. And Jesus asks his disciples the question, who do the crowds say I am? What's the word on the street of a video for the word on the street? Hit it. Who is Jesus? Mm. Um, uh, um, uh, I think, uh, uh, I believe he was a person. Um, he's the son of God. I don't believe Jesus ever really existed. Son of God. If I have to answer that question, I would say God. Uh, he plays on the wing for Chelsea. If you read the Bible, I, I don't think I believe in all of that. Everything. <laughs> you can be any, but for me, he's everything. Who is Jesus? To be honest with you, I don't know. I'm not super religious or anything, so. I mean, he, I guess he's a savior or something. <laughs> Personally, I think that Jesus was probably a really cool dude who lived a long time ago and gave great advice to people, and it snowballed from there. Some of that's shot in Vancouver. Who is Jesus? Is he a prophet? Is he a myth? Is he just a list of to-dos? Is he a good man? Is he a savior? Is he the son of God? The disciples report back to Jesus. People aren't sure who you are. And they're having trouble nailing Jesus down. Some of them think, you know, that Jesus's miracles remind them of the prophets of old who did miracles. And the authority that Jesus speaks with when he talks about things reminds them of prophets of old who spoke with that same authority. They say, maybe it's John the Baptist, although John was just alive with Jesus. So that'd be kind of weird. Maybe it's Elijah, our, our famous Elijah, prophet Elijah back from the dead. Or maybe he's one of those old prophets. They don't know what to make of Jesus. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, a man who's merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with like a poached egg. Or else he'd be the devil of hell. He'd be a liar tricking people. But you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. And you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and you can kill him as a demon or you could fall at his feet and call him Lord. But let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus said and did things that meant he limits our options. And C.S. Lewis says, we got to choose. We got to decide who is Jesus. This is a big question. And if you don't call yourself a Christian, then this is a big question for you to answer. And I would encourage you that it's worth some time to investigate who is Jesus. Jesus asks then his followers that all important, that question, who do you say I am? And I think this might be one of the questions we get at Judgment Day when we're standing in the glory of God and maybe Jesus walks in and Jesus will say, who do you say that I am? I think that could be one of the questions we get to answer. 
It's an important question. And I think every follower of Jesus needs to have an answer for that question. Peter has this moment of pure recognition and he says, you're the Christ. You're the savior. You're the Messiah of God we were waiting for. You're the one. You're it. And I think every person who calls himself a follower of Jesus needs to have that same recognition, that same revelation of who Jesus is. Like Paul who writes, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. How big is that? All things. Did you hear many times he said all things? All things, all things, all things, all things. It's impossible for you to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and not recognize him. It's impossible. But then people say, but if I'm not a follower of Jesus, how am I going to recognize him? I'm in this conundrum. You have to be a follower to recognize him, but if I'm not a follower, do I recognize him? How does that work? You know what? Peter has a lot of dull moments. (laughs) A lot of duds. He falters in the waves. He wants to stay when it's time to go. He refuses to let Jesus wash his feet. He denies Jesus. He's brash. He's outspoken. So it's for all of us that it's Peter who says this great, amazing thing. You're the Christ of God. It's for all of us that it's Peter who's saying that and not one of the awesome disciples. I don't know which one that is, but... In Matthew's account, Jesus responds to Peter and he says this, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, another name for Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. See, Jesus isn't revealed by studying books or hard work or moral deservedness. Jesus is revealed because it's God's good pleasure to reveal him. Just like it's God's good pleasure to give the Holy Spirit to everyone who asks. To everyone, that's God. He says, I love this. I love revealing Jesus. So I'm all about that. John 15, 26 says, when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, this is Jesus talking, the spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So the Holy Spirit available to everyone is the one who helps us to recognize Jesus to help us to see who Jesus really is. Followers of Jesus are those by his grace who've come to recognize him. Harder and easier. Secondly, followers understand the mission. Followers understand the mission. Uh, My kids are part of a program at school, and it's called, I don't know what it's called, but it's an iPad program or something. So they were given these iPads, and they do this study work at school, and they've got these projects, and they get to use iPads at school. And it's amazing, like, the, the amount of information 
they can access. They don't have to go to the library. They just look in this information. And I realized for me too, I have my phone and Google. And now when my kids ask me a question, hey, dad, where does rain come from? I'm like, yeah, let's look that up right here. Hey, here's the answer, kids. I don't have to make stuff up anymore. (laughs) I still do that sometimes just to be difficult. But I have unlimited facts and information. I was talking to my brother who's reading a book about this, and he, he read this book, and the author was challenging the idea of, we have all these facts, but are we smarter? We have all this information, but does that mean we understand it? And the answer is no, it doesn't. Not by a long shot. And for us as followers of Jesus, we have access to all sorts of information, but the question is, do we understand? You might know the mission, but do you understand it? Do you apply it to your life and live it? Jesus explains for the first time of many times how this is going to go down. He does it to his sister. He says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is the first time he's telling them this. And they respond splendidly. They do awesome. No, they don't. This is totally shocking to them. In fact, in Mark we get the record of what Peter does. So it says, and he said this plainly. Jesus said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. This is one of Peter's awesome moments, guys. This is Peter taking Jesus aside and rebuking Jesus. And Jesus, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) Oh, man. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter just went from The best declarative truth. You are the Christ, the son of God. And then a verse or two later, he's getting reprimanded as the mouthpiece of Satan. Like, how does that happen? Like, Peter is so much like us, I feel like. But to be fair to Peter and to the disciples, they were expecting a different mission. This is not what they were expecting Jesus to say. They were expecting the revolution that was going to overthrow Rome. That's what we're doing. And Jesus says, overthrowing Rome is not the revolution. The revolution is that I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. That's the revolution. And it blew them away. It shocked them. Now, if we're honest, if I'm honest, I'm a lot like Peter. I like to take Jesus sometimes over here and just rebuke him. Just t- Jesus, Jesus, come on. This is way too hard. This is the mission? Come on. This is way too challenging. This is way too uncomfortable. Jesus, this is impossible. Are you serious? We're supposed to do this? Come on, Jesus. No, 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 no. Let me tell you how it should be. I'm a lot like Peter. When I did my church planting assessment, so when they said, you know, we went through all this process to see if we should plant a church, which obviously we have. I passed, okay? And my very first thing I had to do was I had to fill out this online assessment, and then I was going to meet with the BC church planting director for our denomination for C2C, our network. And so I was like, okay. So I started doing this online thing. The first section, oh, this is great. Oh, the second section was great. Got to the third section. It was on what's called relational evangelism. So sharing your faith with people. And so I was getting into this, and they started asking some really annoying questions like, how many people did you lead to Jesus this year? What? 
what, this is such a numbers thing. Like, well, lots of people I preached. I preach at camp. And lots of people come to know Jesus that way. And I preach. And, and then they get specific. How many people sitting down, talking to them in your kitchen or whatever, did you, have you led to Jesus? How many people have you baptized this year? Like, what? This is stupid. This is like these people, they care only about the numbers. Oh, and I was so irritated and angry. Now, the truth is, I could be a pastor. I could be whoever. And I can understand the mission. And if I'm not living it and applying it, it doesn't matter what I know. And the fact is that that section of that assessment exposed an area in my life where I understood and was not applying. And it challenged both Lauren and I to begin to apply. How are we reaching out to the world? How, where are our non-Christian friends? Where are the people that we're reaching out to in the world and loving and showing Jesus to? And we were challenged. Jesus is singular in his focus. He's going to rebuke Peter, and he'll say it over and over and over. This is not a kingdom of comfort for Israel. This is a reconciling of the whole world. It's a reconciling of the world. So how do we move from hearing and, under, and knowing something to understanding and applying it? I have a couple quotes from two different people that I think will help us. One is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a pastor who in the Second World War, he applied and lived out his faith and he was sent to concentration camp. This is what he says. Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. At the end... All his disciples deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this cause he had come, to bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christian, too, belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. There is his commission, his work. Or George McLeod says, the cross must be raised again at the center of the marketplace as well as on the steeple of the church. I'm claiming that Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves. On a town garbage heap. At a crossroad so cosmopolitan they had to write his title in Hebrew and Latin and Greek. And it's the kind of place where cynics talk smut. And thieves gamble, curse, and soldiers gamble because that is where he died and that is what he died about. And so that is where churchmen ought to be and what churchmen ought to be about. Where Paul says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. How do we apply this? How do we live it out? We have to go out and do it. We've got to change where we are and change what we're doing and begin to live it. You know what? We don't want to plant this church. I didn't want to plant a church. But we did it because we were following Jesus and because we believed we wanted the most people possible to have the opportunity to encounter Jesus. That's why. We wanted the most people possible to have the opportunity to encounter Jesus and we believed that by doing this, that would happen. More people would experience Jesus. So 
when we become incarnate God in the flesh in our neighborhoods, and when we become inviters, and when we begin to try to share our faith and it's scary and hard, and when we move to two Sunday gatherings, or we move to plant another church in Maple Ridge or Pitt Meadows, it's not going to be easy. It's not going to be comfortable. We won't want to do it. (laughs) I won't want to do it. But this is the mission. The lost. You know what? Like the disciples, we're not going to come to love the mission or be able to apply it to our life by reading books or studying facts or just trying really hard. It doesn't work. We come to love and live the mission by experiencing the Holy Spirit. That's why. You look at the disciples, they didn't get it right away. It wasn't before they saw him crucified and they were weeping in grief and they locked themselves in upper rooms, not before they went back to their fishing nets in despair that Jesus had failed and he was dead. Before the Holy Spirit breathed on them and set their hearts on fire and they couldn't stop living the mission because it was burned in them. Followers of Jesus understand his mission is to seek and save the lost. And thirdly, followers experience sacrifice. Jesus reveals himself, he reveals his mission, and then he issues these really compelling directives. The first one is about crucifixion. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Maybe you've heard it. It's a well-quoted phrase. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, I think because of our culture, we have a hard time feeling the impact of this phrase. Because to us, crosses are religious imagery. They're religious symbols. But for these people, they weren't religious symbols. Jesus hadn't died on a cross yet. Crosses weren't cool or kosher or popular or anything. That was the form of Roman capital punishment. That's how they executed criminals. And the the Romans thought it was brutal. They thought it was brutal. They didn't like it. But it sure was a great deterrent. And it was a great deterrent in Israel because for Jewish people to be hanging up on a tree, there's there's the curse of being hung up on a tree. And so that was like really, really bad. They hated it. It was dark and nasty and horrible. So it must have sounded really strange when this Jewish rabbi says, hey, take up this implement of torture and death and follow me and do it every day. Take up this gruesome, cursed tree and follow me. It wouldn't have made any sense. There's a story of a a tribe in Africa going to war. This is probably how a pastor made up this story, but I'll just tell it to you anyway. So there's this tribe in Africa, and they're going to war. And so they say, how are we going to beat the other tribe? How are we going to win? And, you know, we're, the odds are against us. And so the, the, the religious guy in the tribe says, I think we need to do a sacrifice. We need to sacrifice someone. That's how we're going to win. And so the tribe says, okay, okay, who, how do we decide who to sacrifice? And the holy man says, well, we've got to sacrifice our best warrior. And then we will all be able to fight, you know. So let's do this. We're going to find our best warrior. So they go through everyone, and suddenly no one wants to be the best warrior anymore. And they go through, and they pick the guy. He's the biggest and the strongest, you know, this crazy strong guy. And they bring him out in front of everybody, and they kneel him down. And the holy man takes his knife, and he's like, okay, everyone gather around. We're going to sacrifice him so that we can win this battle. 
And then he takes the knife and puts it on his throat. And then he picks up a goat and he slashes the goat and kills the goat. And the guy's sitting there and everyone's watching. And then the holy man bends down and he looks at the warrior and he says, now go and fight like a dead man. He was just given his life back. Only it's not his life anymore. This is the picture. Daily self-sacrifice. We died and we rose and our new life is not our own anymore. Romans 12 verse 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. A living sacrifice. This is the language that Jesus uses. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Lose your life. Profit and loss. Shame and glory. I wish it didn't say daily. I wish it was like, do this once. Take up your cross, and once you've done it, check it off your list and move on with the Christian list. I'd be like, yes, I did that. I remember I took up my cross in that first year I became a Christian, and now what's, what am I on to? Read the Bible more. Okay, good. I'm doing all the stuff. Good thing I don't have to do that again. Jesus says daily, take up your cross. Deny yourself. Live sacrificially. And what? Whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. The directive is that followers of Jesus are not stingy livers. I don't even know if I can say that, but I just did. Stingy livers. Can we make that a phrase? We're not stingy livers. We don't live stingily. (laughs) I don't know different ways I can say that. The kingdom principle, this is illustrated in lots of places. The tighter you hold on to things, the more pain you experience. The stingier you are, the poorer you become. The more you demand of others and of things, the less you get. And the less you forgive, the more bitter you get. This, these are kingdom principles. Lauren and I, we were... Raising money at one point, we got married and we were going to go on a trip and live in Azerbaijan for three months and um, do this overseas teaching English. And so we were raising support. So we sent out letters to everyone and said, hey, if you could give to this trip and what we're doing, that'd be awesome. And so we sent out all our letters and money came in and it wasn't nearly enough for us to go. And so we were like, oh, what do we do? We can't send out more letters. Hey, we need more money. You know, we already sent letters to everyone we know. I don't know what to do. So we prayed. We said, God, what should we do? And we felt like God said, Give some of the money away. I said, some of the money, like the money we just collected? Like this money that we're trying to get to grow? So it says, yes. So we took some of that money. (laughs) Sounds weird even when I tell it. (laughs) Took some of that money and we sowed it into the kingdom. We gave it away to someone else. And then we watched suddenly, more money started coming in. We're like, this is so weird. What the pile grew. Still not enough. And we went back and said, okay, God, what should we do? Should I like... I could take a side job. I could like, what, what should I do? I'd say, give more away. Like, more of this pile that's now this big. This pile that we're trying to get to grow. God says, yes. So we took some of that and we sowed it into the kingdom. Do you know what? When we went on our trip, we ended up getting to the end of that three months and we had $1,000 left over. And we took that money and we sowed it into the ministry there. They were trying to buy land. We said, here, take this. This is the kingdom. It grows. It expands. It's not stingy. 
Jim Elliot said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. It's a subversive message. It's a subversive gospel. It's a revolution. It's upside down. The ones who surrender everything to Jesus get everything in the end. That's the beautiful picture. And the third directive Jesus issues is that followers of Jesus live with the end in mind. And he says this when he says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now, I used to read that as a kid, and I'd be like, Jesus is going to be ashamed of me. Oh, no, because I've been ashamed of him. I didn't tell my friends at school. I, I was embarrassed that I was a Christian, and I didn't say, I could have said, you know, Praise the Lord, but I didn't say that. Oh, my goodness. I'm, I, I was ashamed. Jesus is going to be ashamed. And I'm ashamed now that Jesus was going to be ashamed because I was ashamed. And then, and then it grows bigger and bigger, and there's more and more shame. I don't think this is what Jesus is saying. Let's get the shame train going. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is followers of Jesus live with the end in mind. Do you know what? Fear breeds shame. Love breeds confidence. So when we're with Jesus, we're around Jesus, we're living in Jesus, we're following Jesus, there's not shame, there's confidence because we live in love. And love drives out fear. That's what the Bible says. This is the reality of a transformed life. Paul says in Romans 8.18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Paul says, whatever I'm going through, I can't even compare it. It's not even worth it. Because what's coming is so incredibly amazing that what I'm going through, it just seems so small. Or in Philippians, he says, whatever whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. That sounds just like... Jesus saying, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will save it. Paul says, I'm losing everything because once I got to know Jesus, everything just seems so, it's, it's all a loss compared to knowing him. That's the treasure. And so we live looking forward with the end in mind as we walk through sometimes very real and difficult challenges. We're looking to hope. So in conclusion, Following Jesus in real life is both harder and easier than it seems. It's harder because, wow, that's a huge challenge. How do we live that? And it's easier because almost everything is because of the power of the Spirit in us, changing us and making us able to love and to live and to do these things. And so as we press into him, as we look to him, we're empowered to do this thing that seems so hard and impossible. Followers of Jesus recognize the king. Followers of Jesus understand the mission. And followers of Jesus experience the sacrifice, and I put in brackets, in hope. We experience it in hope for what's to come. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that um, you, I thank you that you don't make things easy. It's not trite or glib that you put, you put it all on the table. And grace is there. It's a free gift that we embrace, that, that you, you paid for us. And yet following you isn't easy. 
and walking through this, the challenges and the suffering and the sacrifice of life isn't easy. And so, Jesus, we're grateful that you address some of these things, that you call your followers to, uh, to a high calling. And yet, uh, none of this is possible. We can't even begin to follow you without your spirit coming in and awakening us to you. And so, Lord, I ask that for every person here, every heart, Lord, would you come and would you soften our hearts to see you? Would you awaken our hearts to love your mission? And Jesus, as we walk through challenges and difficulties, God, would you enable us to endure and to live in hope for what you're, for what you're doing, Lord, for the glory that's set before us. Jesus, I thank you that we're not alone as we follow, that we're not alone as we try to live this life, that you walk with us, you journey with us, and you enable us to do it. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.